Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to a special edition of The Brian Buffini Show. It was August of 2002 when I had a chance to interview somebody that changed my life, and his name was Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon. And what you're going to hear today is a live recording that was done in front of 5,000 people at our Mastermind Summit in Vegas. It was absolutely a phenomenal experience. It was hilarious. It was insightful. It was awe-inspiring. And for me, it was the highlight of my career to date. Getting Neil Armstrong to come and do our event was extraordinarily difficult. We had lots of reservations about it. He had lots of reservations about it. He hadn't made a public appearance in over a decade. But through one thing and the other, between the agency we were working with and a bunch of personal notes that were written back and forward between myself and him, he agreed to do it. Now, in a couple of preparation calls, so when I go to do one of these interviews, I'll, I'll prepare someone, I'll talk to them ahead of time. Neil was absolutely unresponsive. And I'm like, this is going to be a nightmare. I'm going to be sitting on stage interviewing a guy in front of 5,000 people, and it's like he's a hostile witness. So it was going nowhere. So a little backstory of what you're about to hear is, one of the things uh, we wrote into the contract is we wanted Neil to have lunch with me and my family. So I'm there with Beverly. The kids are young. My mother and father-in-law are there. My mom and dad are there. My brothers are there. And uh, we're having this meal, and it's very quiet, and there's not a lot of conversations. And as you can imagine, Buffinis are not by nature very good with silence in a conversation. And so we're half an hour there. He's really eating in silence, kind of just nodding yes and no once in a while and so on and so forth. So finally, my brother Dermot speaks up, and he goes, you know, Mr. Armstrong, he said, when you were on the moon, I wasn't even on this planet. And my dad, who's a very, very quiet guy in his own right, just like Neil Armstrong was, kind of pops up out of nowhere. And he goes, ah, damn it, it's because of looking at that moon. That's why you're on this planet. Well, I got to tell you, Neil Armstrong almost upchucked his salad. He laughed so hard. He was dying laughing. We were dying laughing. The next thing you know, the conversation just breaks out all over the place. Now, all of a sudden, Neil starts to loosen up. He goes, you know, I, I loved my time in Ireland. I played golf in Ireland many times. I loved the Irish people and their sense of humor. And next thing you know, he starts being like a human being. Instead of all this reservation, all this kind of giving you the stiff arm. And then he said, uh, Brian, would it be okay with you if I had a chance to sit through your presentations before we do our interview? And so he sat backstage and watched me do my thing. And I had footage of NASA and the space launch that I was using as illustrations for the audience. I was using the, the goal, put a man on the moon, bring him safely to Earth by the end of the decade as the most perfect goal ever written. And he, every time I came off stage, he would just open up. He would go, that was fantastic. Now, when you did this and when you showed that, you know, you really captured this. And boy, I really love, I've never seen somebody do that before. And he goes, did you know this? And I would go, no, I didn't know that. And we would have a half-hour conversation, and then they'd call me back up on stage for the next section. I'd do the next section, come back, same thing happened. And so this went on for a day. So by the end of the time that he was ready to be interviewed, he was just totally engaged. He had asked for a workbook. He's backstage filling in all the blanks. He was connected with it. And then when he came on stage, we played uh, an introduction that you won't hear in this interview today. 
and the introduction was we got the music from the movie Apollo 13. And it's this very haunting, dun, 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 and it's very powerful. And we had Walter Cronkite's voice. And then we had this imagery of the space program and the launch and all that kind of stuff culminating in this music crescendoing. And then the picture of Neil Armstrong in 1969. And then all of a sudden, Neil Armstrong morphed into 2002 Neil Armstrong. Well, I introduce him. The curtains open. And he walks out on stage to 5,000 people just kind of whooped up into a frenzy. And there are tears rolling down his face. And he was so inspired by this. And we had an unbelievable time together. We had an unbelievable interview. At the end of the time, we made a connection. He actually doesn't normally do photographs. He took a photograph with every, we did it by group, but every member of our staff. We had 400 staff at the time. And he took a photograph with every single staff member. It was unbelievable. He and I stayed in contact afterwards, wrote each other many letters, and it became just a fantastic connection and a fantastic interaction. He also asked me to send him a copy of the video that was this introduction that really inspired him and kind of moved him. So this right here, you're about to hear on the 50th anniversary of the completion of the perfect goal, the 50th anniversary of a mission that wasn't just about power. It wasn't just about beating the Russians. On the Apollo 11 spacecraft, when it landed on the moon, it said, we came in peace for all mankind. It's a very, very powerful, very profound thing. It's been the highlight of my career, of all the things I've had the privilege to do. And on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, we wanted to share this interview with Neil Armstrong. I hope you enjoy it. I hope to introduce Neil Armstrong, perhaps, to a bunch of folks who've never had a chance to hear him before. And I hope you enjoy this as much as I will listen to today. So listen, enjoy, and be proud of one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of mankind. They're not happy to see you. Oh, they are grand. Well, I was talking to them today about how we were bringing essentially a rocket scientist to meet a bunch of realtors. You have some neat things to share. We've had a, a neat time today, Sharon. It's been a, a pleasure to get to know you some more. But there's some questions I want to walk you through, and we'll have a little chat. Okay. And these will be questions that we've been talking all day today with these folks about setting a goal, which Kennedy did. You know, we're going to send a man to the moon, and then the part you were interested in, return him safely. Uh, <laughs> and then... Uh, the whole process of the obstacles and the space program and all it took and then what it took for you personally. So I think there's some great stuff, and, and I've learned so much from you today already. But I'd like to ask you a few things here if I could. In regards to the whole lunar program, if you were to give, and I am certainly a, a good candidate for Joe Everyman here, what are some of the reasons for the success of the program? What, what would you say? Well, first, we loved our work. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> if you went to the Spacecraft Center in Houston in the 60s and stood across the street from where we were all working, I guarantee you would not be able to tell when quitting time was or when starting time was because people just worked until what they were doing was done, and then they went home. It wasn't a job. Yeah. Communication was 
substantially responsible for our success because we had to not only work together, but we had to communicate over vast distances on Earth in addition to being back and forth between Earth and the spacecraft. In the spacecraft, we didn't have much time to enjoy the views, and the views were wonderful. But there was just too much work to do, too much communication, not just between the crew, but between crew and and the people back in mission control on Earth. And you know, every few minutes we'd hear something like, Hello, Apollo 11, this is Houston. <laughs> I don't know why they say that. Who else was it going to be? <laughs> you have a wrong number. <laughs> But if we had a little problem in the spacecraft, we could phone down to mission control, explain the problem, they could look at telemetry, and they could call the person, they had a hotline to all the contractors and most all the subcontractors, they called the person that assembled that part we were having a problem with. And he could undoubtedly shed some light on whatever the problem was. Well... That's a teamwork consideration. Teamwork was important. Uh Teamwork's important to much of our success. We all depend on other people to some extent on our successes. But I suppose it's also true that you can't depend on teamwork to do everything because some things, when it gets down to it, you have to do them yourself. And I guess the secret to me is you don't want to be the weak link in the chain. You want Mm -hmm. to make sure that you... You're going to be doing your part so that the team succeeds as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, we know you did your part. (laughs) As we go through this, you know, before the whole Apollo missions, you had to go through the Gemini. We saw some pretty wild footage here today of uh, NASA sent us some original footage of the Gemini spinning out of control and you're ready to kind of lose it and you redirect the ship. Just kind of cool as a cucumber. Let me fix a little button here or whatever you did. You know, the Gemini really was a neat little spacecraft. It was probably the first true spacecraft in the fact that it had onboard guidance and navigation. We could tell where we were. Before Gemini, the earlier spacecraft, the Russians and the Mercury spacecraft, they navigated by looking out the window. They said, ooh, that must be Africa down there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it wasn't very high tech in those days. But we had some really good stuff in addition to navigation, and we had a computer, the first spacecraft to ever have a computer on it. Pretty primitive computer, but it was a computer. And we had rockets. We could change our orbit. That was the first spacecraft that could ever change their orbits. And we had a radar on board, and that allowed us to change our orbit and rendezvous with another craft. So on my Gemini flight, we did that, and I made the first successful docking of two craft in space, which went very well before the tumbling started and all that. But I also set another record on that flight. You know, with our computer and our navigation ability, we took great pride in landing very close to the ship, the aircraft carrier that was awaiting us. And my aircraft carrier was in the Caribbean, and I landed near Okinawa. Missed it by that much. 
you know, it, uh, it might it might not be the furthest anyone's ever landed from their target, but I think it'll hold the record for a long time. It only looks like that on a map, doesn't it? It's the half a world. We were talking at lunch, and I, I was asking you, what's it like on a rocket? And you said, well, it depends on what rocket you're on. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's a different kind of lunchtime conversation than I'm used to having. <laughs> <laughs> In regards to the computer, on the actual Apollo, the landing module, the, the whole process, how powerful a computer did you have? In today's terminology, how powerful would you say it was? Well, it was not as good as a laptop, but it was probably a little better than a handheld. It actually had some of you that are computer nerds. Uh, He's a pilot. He's not a nerd. You know, you've got to have gigs and that kind of stuff. And we didn't have gigs or even megs. The uh, Apollo computer had 32K of fixed memory and 2K of erasable. That was it. No screen, no sound, no icons, no, no nothing. Just, and the, the keyboard just had 0 through 10, read, clear, and enter. I think it might have been one or two more keys. We, we had no graphics, no screen. On its best days, it couldn't get to one megahertz. <laughs> so it was slow and weak, but it got its there. Yeah, baby. Hey, Matt. Yeah. All right. We've got a couple of things here. Here's a question uh, one of my kids wants to know. I'm asking a question, so I take liberties. Can you tell us what it feels like to leave your home planet? You know, many of you will remember that the, the speed in Earth orbit is... Uh, Oh, about 17,500 miles an hour. Any object that's in low Earth orbit's going about that fast. And that's where we'd gotten on the first parts of our, our launch. But once in orbit and making sure that everything was okay, we did need to fire up our rocket a second time and add about another seven or 8,000 miles an hour to kick ourselves out of Earth orbit and on a trajectory toward the moon. Now... You can't sit in any kind of machine and accelerate seven or 8,000 miles an hour without you suspecting that something's going on. Uh, but you see, it was at night. We were on the night side of the Earth over Africa, and we couldn't see, and you just couldn't get an appreciation of what it was that was happening. But as we came out into daylight over Indonesia, we could see, and it was spectacular. We were ascending from the Earth at a rate of, you know, something like going outward at 5,000 miles an hour or 7,000 miles an hour, something like that. But from our point of view, we just seemed like we were motionless, and the Earth was sinking away from us. And we could see more and more of the horizon, the Pacific out there, the uh, Indian Ocean, Malaysia, all of a sudden we could see the whole sphere, a great gigantic blue ball covered with a white lace of clouds. 
and it was just sinking further and further away, sort of into that inky black sky. Well, I said to myself, boy, this time you might have just gone and done it. Bev was asking you at lunch today about uh, what it feels like at the point of impact. I mean, I don't know if you were the Irish space program. I mean, if, if God hadn't created alcohol, we'd have gotten there before him. There's no doubt about it. Um, but at home, in describing it, it was like, well, you strap your rear end to a nuclear missile. It's kind of like what it is, isn't it? I mean, I know that's real technical. Well, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> but what, what does it feel like? I mean, when, when you're just taken out, I mean, this thing is, uh, what, the what is it, 7 5, million pounds of thrust? Is that a Saturn 5 was, it was a big dude. You know, it weighed 3,000 tons. That's probably 10 times as much as a 747 or a C5 or something. It was a big thing. And with the uh, 7,500,000 pounds of thrust, which is quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, 7.5 million. Well, when it lifts off, there's enormous noise and enormous vibration, but not much force on the body. It lifts off very gently. You just wonder when the thing is going to blow. <laughs> and you can't hear because there's so much noise from the Saturn V that uh, even with your head inside the helmet, you could not hear what people were talking to you over the radio, people in, in launch control. They couldn't receive them. But that's because in addition to the rocket's noise, you were also getting the reflection of the rocket's noise off the ground coming back up, so it was doubled. And once we got above a thousand feet, something like that, we could hear fine when all the reflected noise disappeared. But the Saturn V continued to vibrate throughout the entire first stage. It was like going on a very bad railroad track that rattles in all three directions. I mean, it, was, it was really a shaker. But when the first stage completed all its fuel and we lit up the second stage, it was just the opposite. It was so smooth and so quiet that we couldn't even be sure the engine was running. The best surprise was it was running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This might be similar, but um, what was the most spectacular sight on the Apollo flight? You know, every, every sight in space is spectacular. I mean, you just can never look out the window without being amazed at what you see. And I hope that technology will allow more and more people to go and see those sites and see our planet. It's a beautiful place, or particularly when you see it from a distance. It's mm. a magnificent sight. But the most beautiful sight, as we were approaching the moon, and I'd say maybe we're five, 7,000 miles out, pretty close, we flew into the moon's shadow which means that from our point of view, the moon was eclipsing the sun. So we would see the dark gray moon and behind it the corona of the sun coming out all around. It was a lovely sight. And now we were close enough that the, the moon wasn't a disk. 
as we see it from here on Earth, it looks pretty flat to us from here. But it was clearly three-dimensional, a ball, and it was covered with ridges and craters and valleys and hills and all manner. And that was, it was in the dark, but it was being illuminated by the light of Earth. Now, because Earth is, as you know, 16 times bigger in area than the moon, and it's also more reflective. So consequently, Earth light is substantially brighter than moonlight at the same distance. And because of the oceans, that light is decidedly blue. Light is blue. So we were looking at this, this three-dimensional ball with all these valleys and ridges and craters and things, and it was illuminated by blue Earth light, and we were flying toward it faster and falling faster and getting closer and getting faster. It was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen. <laughs> Clinging on. <laughs> All right. Earlier on today, I showed them a video clip of when you were coming down, your, your 35K computer kind of fritzed out. Yep. Okay, it had about enough to tell time, and then it fritzed out, and so they basically said, ignore the alarms, go for landing, mm-hmm. you know, take over manually, mm-hmm. and fly this bird. Mm-hmm. And so you were heading for, uh, I guess, a series of craters or, okay, bad stuff, so you took over, and there, there wasn't a lot of gas left. I can't remember specifically. A lot of people talk about the different numbers. What, what do you think the numbers were? How much gas did you think you had left in the tank when you landed there? Well, you know, the tank is a sphere. Mm-hmm. And when you have a small amount of liquid in the bottom of a sphere, it's very difficult to know just how much is there. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a very flat, shallow curved surface. We had a port on a probe that went down, and when the liquid went past that port, it turned a light on. And at that point, we computed that we had approximately 30 seconds left. And that light came on, and we were still flying. (laughs) But we were getting fairly close. And I think when we touched down, we probably had something like 20 seconds. But no one will ever know for sure, because there wasn't any way of measuring just how much fuel was left. Now, the stories are, again, you can verify this. They had you guys all heart monitored up and whatever else. Now, this is what I've read this in the mission report. I've read this in a lot of different places, that Neil Armstrong's heartbeat was cool as a cucumber, and Buzz Aldrin was... Not true. Makes for a hell of a story, Neil. I don't know what Buzz's was doing, but mine was going... (laughs) (laughs) And, And that's normal for me, and I wouldn't want anyone to think I wasn't interested at that point. But one of the reasons I mentioned Bud, and this is kind of a funky thing, but obviously some guy challenged him this year that you guys never really did this, and you shot a video in Nevada, and, and Buzz, 72-year-old old man that he is, bopped him one and sent him on his rear end. <laughs> they like that. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you that question because I know you're <clears throat> even worse. Um, <laughs> but 
there's things that you did that can prove you guys were there. What would be some of the examples? Oh, gosh. You know, on Apollo 12, they brought back part of the Surveyor spacecraft that had been on the moon for several years. And we brought back a number of minerals that have never been found on Earth. Mm-hmm. And we even got one named after us, our Malkalite, for Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. Our oh. Malkalite. Yeah. Cool. And, of course, you know, the world loves conspiracies. Sure, sure, these sure. Conspiracy theories are always very popular. And so I don't mind when these guys say, no, you won't. Now, but you have to find a way around certain facts. One is they claim we were just flying in Earth orbit while we were doing this instead of going to the moon. But unfortunately, in addition to our own country, which was tracking where we go, I hope they were, a lot of people in other countries were tracking our trajectory as well, including some countries that we weren't on very good terms with at the time. But let me just tell one story that's one of my personal favorite. Scientists can give thousands of these reasons why they can see it couldn't have been. I think probably the only thing harder to do than fly to the moon would have been fake it. (laughs) (laughs) There was an astronomer that proposed an experiment shortly before the Apollo voyages when it became obvious that they were going to try to go to the moon. His idea was measure the distance between Earth and Moon by measuring the time it took a beam of light to go from Earth up to Moon and back to Earth. Now, in order to do that experiment, they needed some kind of a mirror up on the Moon to reflect the light back. My job on the experiment was to install the mirror. So, I got to the moon and started to install the mirrors. Now, the only reason this idea works at all is because of a peculiarity that you all know about. The Earth rotates once every 24 hours, and so we see the sun come up in the morning and go across the sky and go down in the west, and then we see them at night, we see the moon go up, we see the stars move up. Now, if you're on the surface of the moon, The sun, just like here on Earth, comes up in the east, goes across the heavens, sets in the west, takes it 14 Earth days to do that. So a complete day-night cycle on the moon is about 28 days. But the Earth doesn't rise in the east and go across the sky and send. It stays fixed in the sky at approximately the same point all the time. So... If I could get the mirrors pointed at the Earth, they would always stay pointed at the Earth, and people could fire light beams up there for months and years. And they wanted to make sure that this alignment was very important, that it would be very simple to do. It had to be so foolproof that even a simpleton could do this job. That's where I came in. (laughs) So we set about putting the mirror in position, and immediately the guys on Earth, who happened to be at Lick Observatory, which is on Mount Hamilton, and you see it if you drive down through 101 through San Jose on top of the hill up there. It's silver domes up there. That's where they were. And they couldn't wait to get that laser zapping. 
I thought it would have been nice if they said, Are you ready up there? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not duck or anything. Just shoot him, you know. Now, these guys up in Mount Hamilton, they really were into this experiment, and they really liked these laser beams, the little little bumps of laser light that were sticking up there. And when they didn't get back, they worried about it. I mean, they never did catch any of the little fellas. And they tried it again. They still didn't get any. They were beginning to think that they had a simulton up there aligning the mirror. But they kept fiddling with their equipment, and they got one. All of a sudden, they got one. And they fiddled them a little more, and then they got another one. They got another one. And they, and they found that the reason they hadn't been catching them in the first place was that they'd used the wrong location, the wrong latitude and longitude of Lick Observatory, which is the same position they'd used ever since it was built in 1890-something. <laughs> and so the first results we got from mirrors on the moon was the proper position of Mount Hamilton on Earth. <laughs> and it, I mean, it wasn't just these guys at Mount, Mount Hamilton that were shooting their lasers. Guys in other countries had to be, guys in France were shooting their laser beams. Everybody wanted to know where they were. Now, the theory said that you ought to be able to calculate the distance between Earth and Moon to an accuracy of of 11 inches. You may wonder why anybody would want to know the distance to the Moon within 11 inches, but, I mean, we had a mileage report for our travel voucher. (laughs) Anyway, there were a lot of... I mean, guys, guys were shooting their lasers at the moon all over the world, and they do so to this day. They're still getting answers back about how far they are, which has a lot of useful... It really does. You find out it's, it's difficult for a non-astronomer to explain it, and I won't try to, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of those mirrors. And I submit that's my exhibit A for why we really got there. That's cool. Great stuff. <laughs> You know, in passing today, we talked a little bit about just some of the byproducts of the benefits of the space program. It wasn't just this all-encompassing, you know, get a couple of guys on the moon and come back and say, we did it. It's transformed all of our lives. Can you give a couple of examples of some of the technology that we use today that came from it? NASA puts out a book every year that has kind of spin-off results from technology's use of things that were developed during the okay. space program that now have been adapted to other things. And there are, you know, thousands of them each year. I think some of the most exciting are the ones in medical science. It's just been enormous use of remote sensing and remote control. We, we now take things for granted on being able to do remote operations and see inside the body in ways that you could never see before. Much mm-hmm. of that, and I won't say all because certainly not all, it's mm-hmm. coming from a variety of sources, sure. not just one thing, but the growth in technology engendered by sure. the space efforts have contributed a lot. I feel very pleased that that's happened, and okay. I, I think it will continue. Change their lives. I got one last one from me. There's one thing I want to know since the day you agreed to come, 
And as I mentioned to you, we live on a house, top of a hill, and we get so many great views of the sky at night. And here's the question that's just been, every time I go home and I see the moon, this is the question I've been wanting to ask you. It's a crystal clear November evening, little nip in the air. It's just as clear as can be. And you're driving home, and you get out of your car, and you look up. And you see this, this image. What comes to your mind? What jumps to your mind? Girls. Nothing quite as sexy as an astronaut, is there? <laughs> do you think technically, do you think, oh, that's this or that's, that's that part? I mean, just, just stuff like, man, I can't believe I was there, or do you look at it scientifically, or is it just like... You know, when you look at a globe of the Earth in your home or library or wherever you see it, you see places on there. You see countries and you see cities, and uh-huh. some you identify with because you've been there uh-huh. or you read about it or you have relatives living there or something. And when I see this globe, I see places I've flown over, places I've been, some places where colleagues of mine have landed and explored the surface. Sure. But I think the striking part to me is how little we know about it yet. We know a thousand times more than we did when I was a boy, maybe more than a thousand times more, certainly that much, and yet we've only explored a teeny tiny fraction of this place, and there's there's a lot more questions than there are answers there. Wow. Great stuff. Thank you. Okay. He's answered my question. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some questions from the audience. This is your chance to ask a question of Neil Armstrong. We're going to take them one at a time. Keep them short. Stand up, tell us who you are, where you're from. Hi, Neil. I'm a physicist, so I kind of was following that back in those days, and I watched you when you landed. I had heard that they, when they designed the lander, they put the feet on the pods, and they made them very, very large because they had anticipated that the surface of the moon had a very, very thick layer of dust. And yet when you actually landed, as you mentioned, I think, there was only a very thin layer I'm just wondering what the uh, the scientists were thinking at that point. You're quite correct on all points. The lunar module was designed before we had very much information about the surface. And there was a school of thought led by a professor at Cornell who said that the surface was very likely to be sort of like cotton candy. And even though the lunar module was not particularly heavy at that point when it's got rid of most of its fuel, it still had a chance of sinking in. But we didn't think that this was likely. The surveyor spacecraft had landed before us, and we knew from pictures sent back from it what the surface bearing strength was underneath the surveyor, and we could compute what it might be if it were the same in the place we landed. Besides, the professor from Cornell had never been right about anything else. So we... <laughs> Let's take this baby up and see what she can do, right? But, but you know, can... if it did sink in, we were prepared to leave, and we could. Okay. Thank Great you. Stuff. Who's next? What's your name? Janelle. Janelle. How old are you, Janelle? I'm 12. And where are you from? Danville, California. Danville, California. All right. Welcome. What's your question? 
Mr. Armstrong, when you came back, did you ever want to go again? I certainly would like to go, and if that's an offer, I accept. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, no doubt. Thank you, Janelle. Does anybody doubt him? <laughs> Who's next? Hi, who are you? Where are you from? I'm Camille Hendricks from Houston, Texas. In fact, our office is right directly across the street from NASA, and I see those jet engines out there every day when I go to work. We have always been taught to set goals for ourselves. What kind of goals did you set for yourself as a young man and then as you have uh, progressed in age? Thank you for that question. Let me back up a little bit to the Apollo goal, which you all talked about earlier in, in the day and yeah. so on. The nice thing about that goal was that it was so simple and understandable. Oh. Send a man to the moon, return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. I mean, everything you needed to know was oh. there. And I think it's a great advantage when goals can be stated in such a way that they're not ambiguous and you know exactly what it is you're trying to do. And that was a model for me. I've never been as good at doing that for myself as uh, Jack Kennedy did for our program. But the important thing to me, and I, I think probably to many here, is that you want to make a mark. You'd like to leave the world a little better than when you came. That's my goal. Number two, yeah. Tell us who you are and where you're from, please. Anderson, I'm from San Rafael, California. Hi. My question, Mr. Armstrong, is when you got out in space for the first time and you looked back and viewed the Earth from way out there, did it alter or influence or change your feeling about the beauty and the preciousness of this physical globe that we live on? And also about the humanity that lives here? Thank you. Certainly, no one could fail to be impressed with the views that you have. And when you look back to the Earth, as I said earlier, you are very aware of the unique nature of our planet compared to everything else we've seen. It's the only blue one. And you look down, it's got lightning strikes and stuff like that, and you might think, oh, I don't think I want to go there. But we know that the lightning strike is only a, an inconvenience in, in general. I think everyone has, every person that's been into space has thought of the fragility, what they call the fragility of our, our planet and how important it was to find ways to protect it. Now, we all disagree, however, on just how that best be done. And it's not clear, necessarily, just what the answers are yet. But studying them is well worth the effort. And uh, my great hope is that this 21st century will be the century in which, one, we really start to understand our own planet. Two, we really start to understand ourselves. Cool. Right, 
Okay, couple more. Yes. How did you handle the negative, doubting naysayers around you prior to this in terms of keeping your own positive perspective and that of the other crew members? I'm not sure that I've really ever thought about that in that light before. I must say that my colleague, Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 11, was enormously helpful in this regard. He reminded us on quite a few occasions that we shouldn't worry about things that had already been proven in the past. We needed to accept those and go on because we had enough unknowns that had not been explored yet that we needed to face and we should not use up what emotion we had and what concerns we had on things that we really either couldn't do anything about or second had already been proved to be doable in the past. So I think I was pretty positive most of the time, but I'll admit to you, I wasn't always perfect. For example, we had a lot of ways to do things in most cases, but when we had to take off the lunar surface, we had only had one engine to do it, and it had to work. Now, it was kind of a nice engine because it didn't require ignition system or a spark plug or anything like that. If you just opened the valves and let the two propellants go together, they would self-ignite, and it was a very simple system. And I said to the program bosses with my negative thinking, well, why don't we just put a couple of big manual handles in there and we'll just turn the valves on ourselves and start the engine and go. But NASA likes to have more technical configurations in their system, so they like to have a lot of solenoids and valve drivers and circuit breakers and various things. And so I really spent a lot of time studying that circuit breaker and those valve drivers and those solenoids and those wiring diagrams so that when I couldn't open the two valves manually, I could press the button and have great level of confidence that it would work. So That's neat. At NASA, you guys were surrounded by a bunch of fired-up people. It's what you began with today. You couldn't tell what quitting time was. People were working. People were dedicated. People were passionate. I'm sure it was a pretty positive environment to go to work every day. People were, felt part of a team, and it was a winning team. And when I pushed that button to leave the moon, I was sure it was going to work. <laughs> I right. conquered my negative thoughts. Powerful. Great. We only got time for two more. Two more. Yes. Hi, who are you? Zachary Hansen. How old are you and where are you from? I'm seven years old and I'm from Discovery Bay, California. Great. What's your question, Zachary? I was wondering how many days did it take for you to get to the moon? Excellent. How many days did it take you to get there? It takes three days to go and three days to come back and then plus however long you stay there. But I would not recommend that you stay more than two or three nights because the hotel rates are very high. <laughs> Rob Foy from Ellicott City, Maryland. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Mr. Armstrong, when you said one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, was that planned or were you just inspired by the moment? <laughs> well, first, you have to blame me for it. But I didn't think about it till after we landed. And, and the reason was, statistics aside, my gut feeling was that we had a 
90% chance of returning safely to Earth on that flight and a 50% chance of making a successful landing on the first try. We thought very likely that because that part of the descent to the lunar surface uh, had never been demonstrated before, and it was a very complex part of the, of the mission, and uh, the hardware was very heavily utilized in that part, and the, the opportunities for things to go wrong were large. So we thought that the very good chance in that first try that something would go awry and we'd have to abort the mission in the middle of the descent someplace and go back and rendezvous and, and go home and try it again some other month. That being the case, with only a 50% chance in my mind, I didn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about something that, to say that I only had a 50% chance of needing to say. <laughs> but I did think about it after landing, and it was kind of simple statement and just stepping off, and it seemed, seemed right. I hope you put up with it. Okay. Young lady, you have the last word of the evening. Who are you and where are you from? Please let everybody know. Hi. I'm Sandra Alt from Kent, Washington. And my question, first of all, a comment. My grandmother was born in 1884, traveled by covered wagon, train, plane. And then she saw two world wars and a few months before she passed away in 1994, I asked her of everything that she had seen in her lifetime, what was the most memorable? And she said, seeing the man walk on the moon. And And I get to ask the question that she always wanted to know the answer to. In your lifetime, what is the most memorable thing that you have ever witnessed, or what is your most memorable thing? You know, it's tempting to make a smart answer, but the fact is, (laughs) I'd have a hard time picking something above uh, Apollo 11 on a technical grounds. On a personal grounds, I think you always have family things that are yeah. even more important to you. Birth of a child. Thank you so much. On a personal note, this has been one of the best days of my life. I hope it has been for you. Incredible. Neil, blessings on you. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, listening to that just brings back so many memories. And I remember standing on stage being totally overwhelmed after that experience. And it just kind of hit me that here I was, the son of a house painter, grew up on the south side of Dublin. And I had worked in real estate and done well and then built a business that would allow me to bring in people to, to impact and improve the lives of folks. And I was standing there going, I can't actually believe I got the privilege of doing 
what I just did for the last hour. And uh, that feeling has never gone away. And I still believe it's a, it's an unbelievable privilege to do this. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this today. Now, just an FYI, there's a brand new movie that's just come out called Armstrong. And it's a fantastic documentary. And of all the movies that are out right now about the space program and the moon landing and so on and so forth, or movies I've seen on Neil Armstrong, this is by far the most authentic one. And in fact, if you get this movie, Armstrong, it's in local theaters, or it's available for streaming on iTunes, they've actually included a little piece of our interview with Neil Armstrong. So David Fairhead is the uh, director. He got Harrison Ford to do the uh, narration. It's beautifully done. It's in conjunction with the Armstrong family. So they got original footage and original video. So I would encourage you to check that out. So we're actually going to include a bonus episode this week where you'll get a chance to listen to this interview with David Fairhead, the director of Armstrong. So we're going to release that to you as well. And you'll have fun listening to not only how he perceived Neil Armstrong, but ultimately uh, how a movie gets made and how a great documentary director who's made over 30 films and won Sundance Awards and you name it actually goes about making a movie. So that's a special bonus for you. I hope you enjoy that. I hope you have learned a lot today. I hope you feel proud of the accomplishment of putting a man on the moon. And uh, I hope, like myself, you continue to learn the lessons that Neil Armstrong left us with. And so as I end up the program today, I'm going to throw it over for a little blessing because we all need a blessing in our lives. And I'm going to ask my mom to share a blessing with all of us. Till next time. Bye-bye. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. 